Well, we continue our study of the book of Colossians this morning. And, uh, man, that light is bright. Man, Robin, what did you do to those lights this week? I'm not able to break out into a sweat. Ah, thank you. Here we go. Today we want to talk about shadow or reality. And our text is Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. And uh, for some reason, there we go. We're going to plug it in here to the computer, and then we'll be good to go. Okay, ready? Aha! Colossians 2, beginning with verse 13. There will be several slides for us to read. Would you read it with me in unison? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their false treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That is a mindful today. Today we want to talk about these things, but before we actually get into the text, I want to just give you a little bit of background. Even though the Apostle Paul had not gone to Colossae and established the church, it was established by people who apparently heard the gospel when he was at Ephesus and then carried the gospel to their oikos, if you will, in Colossae. A church was established. But as normally was a pattern, soon after the church was established, the Jewish legalists came along, and they tried to add things to the gospel of Christ. They tried to impose the Old Testament law upon this Gentile church. They taught that the Gentiles could not achieve spiritual completeness unless they had strict observance to the Old Testament law. In other words, they had to go through the rite of circumcision. They had to uh, obey the law and... Uh, Basically, these, it was frustrating 
the early believers, the Gentiles. In the Greek, what Paul says about don't let anyone judge you, it literally means let no one keep on judging you. Apparently, there were people who were judging the Gentile believers at the church at Colossae. And it had become a serious problem, and so Paul addresses it. He addresses two things in the passage we read together today. There is the God-given rules and regulations that the legalists were trying to carry across to the New Covenant and put the Gentile believers under observance of the ceremonial law that God gave. And also, you have the judicial law that God gave and putting them under that. And, um, again, that was one area of problem that Paul addresses. The second area of problem that he addresses is the rules, man-made regulations, that some of the false teachers were laying upon people. And um, these people were introducing the worship of angels uh, in addition to the worship of Jesus Christ. And there was serious error that was coming into the Colossian church. And so Paul addresses those two areas. The area of legalism in particular had to deal with certain things, and he addresses them in our text. The first is meat, or what you eat. There were Old Testament dietary regulations. There, were, there was clean food and unclean food. And for the Jews, it was okay to eat some things, but not to eat others. And I'll talk more about that later on in our, in our uh, discussion this morning. Leviticus 11 uh, if you want to look that up, you'll see what uh, what God said to the Jews. And then there was the area of drink, what people would drink. Certain things that they were permitted to drink, certain things they weren't. Then there were holy days and religious festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. The legists were saying, you Gentiles have to observe these things as well. And uh, so Paul writes to correct that idea. Don't let people judge you by holy days and religious festivals. And then he talks about the new moon celebration. The new moon celebration in the Old Testament marked the observance of the lunar calendar. In Numbers 10, we find that it involved a day of rest, worship, and fellowship, and a big massive potluck. Numbers 28 tells us that a sacrifice was made on the first day of the month of the new moon. And so this was something that the Jews observed and celebrated. And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you if you don't celebrate that. And then there were Sabbath days, Exodus 20. Do you realize that the Jews did not come together to worship God on Sunday? You're aware of that? The word Sabbath means what? Seventh. So they came on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath. Uh, the Lord said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, set that day aside unto the Lord to worship him, to rest. Uh, people needed a day of rest as well as a day of worship. And so the Lord gave that instruction in Exodus 20. The early church in Jerusalem, it seems like they celebrated Two days a week. They came together on Saturday, and they would go up to the temple, and they would meet together in the temple courts on Saturday. And then they would meet in homes on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. 
And again, they would spend time together in discussing the scriptures and what Jesus had taught. The early church, especially the Gentiles, began to worship the Lord on the first day of the week. And you find that referenced in scripture in a couple places, Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Why did they begin to worship the Lord on the first day of the week? Because it was called the Lord's Day. And it was the day of his resurrection. Jesus arose on the first day of the week. And so the early church, particularly the Gentile church, began to worship the Lord in celebration of his resurrection. And so that's how Sunday became uh, the day of worship for the Gentile church. Now, there were weaknesses in legalism that the Jews were trying to impose. And we're going to see this today. Verse 7, it says, For these rules are only shadow, were only a shadow of the real thing, which was Christ himself. The Old Testament law that God gave through Moses was a shadow. Now, I've got light up here, a lot of light. Can any of you see the shadow on my face? Now, is the shadow reality or is my face reality? Well, unfortunately, my face is reality. But the shadow exists, why? Because there's a material object or thing between me and the light. And the shadow does not exist in and of itself. It is caused by a material object. And it points us to the object that formed it. For instance, if, you, if I were to do that on a piece of paper, or actually on this desktop, you can tell that, oh, there's a hand there. Now, you're not seeing the hand there. You're seeing the shadow. The reality is here. The Bible tells us that the Old Testament law was holy, it was just, and it was good. But it couldn't save anybody because it commanded perfect obedience to it, and nobody could perfectly obey God's law. And it showed us our sin and our need for a Savior the need for a perfect sacrifice, and it pointed people to the Messiah who would come and the sacrifice that he would make for us. We're told in Scripture that Jesus lived a sinless life, and by his sacrificial death, he met the requirements of the Old Testament law, which demanded death for sin. And by his death, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, and provided amazing blessings for us. And Paul in verses 13 through 17 today explains what some of these blessings are, and we're going to look at them together. The first is, because Jesus came and died and fulfilled the demands of the law, we have complete forgiveness. Verses 13 and 14. We're told in verse 13 that we were dead spiritually. We had no spiritual life before we became believers in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul had described this. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects 
of wrath. We were deserving of God's wrath. We were dead spiritually. We had no, we had no sensitivity to God. I want to ask you a question. How many people in your oikos are like that? They are not believers, and they, they really don't really care to know too much about God. They don't really want to talk about God. They, for the most part, they just don't want to go there. And uh, one of the, and the reason for that is they're spiritually dead. Now, if a person is, is physically dead, they have no sensitivity to anything. Light, dark, noise. Uh, physical, any kind of physical stimulus, they're, they're oblivious to it. And when we, before we became believers in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we were dead spiritually. Now, a person who's dead spiritually can't resurrect themselves. We're going to talk about that more next week. Only God can do that. That's why salvation is referred to as the new birth by Jesus. He Gives, he gives us life from above. He infuses us with spiritual life the moment we believe. And he draws us to himself so that we will have an open mind and be able to understand the gospel and believe it. So we were dead spiritually. But then we're also told something else. God made us alive with Christ. And we find that in this text. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, after Paul explains to the Ephesian church that they were dead he then talks about life. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. And again, we'll talk more about that last phrase next Sunday. But today... Notice this, it's because God loved us that he reached down to us. Because of his mercy, he reached down to us. He opened our minds to the gospel. And we believed, and he gave us spiritual life. And we began then to relate to the Lord and other believers. Even when we were dead in transgressions, God didn't wait for us to become alive spiritually because we couldn't do anything like that. We were dead. We couldn't give our spiritual life any more than someone who is dead physically and give themselves physical life. It takes the work of God's grace and mercy in somebody's life for them to be able to believe and come to faith in Christ. We were dead spiritually. God made us alive with Christ. We see that in verse 13 of our text today. And then we see another blessing that involves forgiveness. He forgave us. Verse 13. And verse 13 says, He forgave us some of our sins. Is that what it says? No. He forgave us all of our sins. The Bible talks about how blessed is the man whose sins, iniquities, are forgiven. And when God forgave us, He forgave us of all of our sins. As we will see in a moment, that includes the sins that we, we committed before we believed. It, committed any, it covered any sins that we might commit today or tomorrow. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were covered by Jesus when he died on the cross. 
How do you know that, Brad? Well, because God's Word says it. The word all means all. You might want to underline that in your Bible. And when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, how many of your sins were in the future? All. So underline the word all. And then verse 14 says, He canceled the written code. There's some discussion among Bible scholars over specifically what this means, but I think the text that we are looking at, the context of it, and who he was addressing here in terms of legalism, uh, that would probably refer to the legal code of the Old Testament. And the Greek is the perfect tense, which means a permanent canceling, a once and for all canceling of something or removal of it. How did he do it? Well, he nailed it to the cross. That's an interesting word picture for us. He nailed it to the cross, verse 14. It's a, it's a tremendous word picture of permanence. When I think of that text this week, I was thinking about my son, Scott. When he was a little guy, we lived in Boise, Idaho. We had a big, huge backyard. And we had uh, a, a wood stove. It was one of those big, old, huge, blaze king wood stoves. And I had a guy in the church who worked for Idaho Power Company. And Idaho Power Company would ship equipment on these big pallets, wooden pallets. They were made of swamp oak. And I'll tell you, you want to see something burn hot. Burn something that's made from swamp oak. And I'll tell you what, we would put that stuff in the fireplace and that that wood stove would almost get red on the outside. We had to be really careful because the kids were little. But I can remember, I'm not going to, again, not going to embarrass my daughter by saying this, but I can remember it could, be, it could be zero outside with snow on the ground. The kids would be running around in their skivvies in the family room because it was so hot in there. Uh, it was just, it just really cranked out the BTUs. But during the summer months, my son found a use for the wooden pallets. He decided he was going to make a fort in the backyard out of them. So I supplied him with a hammer and nails. And he nailed all those things together. He bent more nails on that oak than he got through. But somehow he got them all fastened together. And he built a fort along with the neighbor boys. And uh, we had a cool family that lived across the fence, and we built a steps up and down so that the kids could go back and forth without having to go around the block. And a uh, Christian family, and, uh, and the kids really got along well together. We had a good time together. But I got to thinking about that, the permanence of what Scott nailed together. I tried to pull it apart. It took me half a day to finally pull it apart so I could burn it one winter. There was a permanence involved in, the, in what he had created. And so I think that when I think of this word picture of permanence, of Christ nailing it to the cross, his sacrifice covered all of our trespasses, all of our sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. We have complete forgiveness 
through Jesus Christ. Second thing we have is we have complete victory. And that's found in verses 16 and 17. And he says this in verse 16. He says, therefore, don't let anybody judge you. Some translations say, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only a shadow of the real thing, which is Christ himself. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you on what you should eat or drink. I've used this illustration before, but I referred to it last week. I can't remember. Chocolate chip cookies. Did I mention that to you last week? had a guy in my church at Boise. Um, he and his family came into town one day and looked up our church and called us, and we had him come up to the house and had him stay for dinner, and they became a part of our church. And he was from Texas. And he was that Texan who, thinking about unity and union, had these cute sayings about you can tie a dog and a cat's tail together and throw them over a clothesline. You might have a union, but you won't really have unity. And that was his idea of, you know, the church. But before they came to us, they had been involved in what I would call kind of a semi-cult down in the south. And I was interested to listen to his story because they, they kind of lived in almost like a Christian commune. And the pastor was really a, a rigid dictator. And woe to the woman who would bring chocolate chip cookies to the potluck because chocolate chips were deemed by the pastor to be something that wasn't good for you and therefore was evil. So all of you ladies who love chocolate and all of you men who love chocolate, there's not much hope for you. And I realize that that's probably an extreme case, but he says, don't let anybody judge you. Those people were letting that pastor judge them and dictate to them these minute areas of living that had nothing to do with the Bible or faith in Jesus Christ. And that's always one of the things that legalism produces. It's not only an adherence to rules and regulations, it's adding to the rules and regulations that God has given and then judging other people on the basis of the man-made regulations. And that's what legalism is, and that's what was going on here. He said, don't let anybody judge you regarding your religious festivals, the new moon celebration, whether you celebrate it or not, or Sabbath days. He says in verse 17, Verse 17, he says, uh, what happened to point number two? Anyway, that should be liberty, I mean victory instead of liberty. Verse 15, he says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. They're just a shadow. These things in the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah who would come. We know that's Jesus. And basically, Paul is saying, don't focus on the shadow. Focus on the real thing. He says, the reality, however, is found in Christ. That's because I, I jumped ahead to liberty. Anyway, back to victory. Whew. Not sure what happened there. Verse 15. 
It says that he disarmed the powers of darkness and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them on the cross. We not only have complete forgiveness, we have complete victory through Jesus Christ. And again, it's the picture of a Roman general. When the Roman generals came back from war or a big battle, they would bring their prisoners with them, and then they would parade those prisoners through the streets of Rome and uh, make a spectacle of them. The idea is that when Jesus died as our sacrifice for sin, he not only guaranteed our forgiveness, he defeated Satan and his demons. And I believe that's what Paul is referring to here in verse 15. In this way, God disarmed the evil powers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross of Christ. We have complete victory. Is Satan and our demons real? Yes. What is the primary strategy that Satan uses? Deceit? Intimidation? But his real authority, he's been stripped of it. Jesus did that on the cross when he died. And there are real demons, in the case you're not familiar with that subject, demons are fallen angels. We're told in Scripture that Satan rebelled against God and took a third of God's angels in rebellion with him. And these are the forces of darkness, and there has been a struggle since the beginning of time between God and his plan and Satan and his plan. As we have God and, and his angels in a battle, a spiritual battle against Satan and his forces. And we find that as followers of Jesus Christ, sometimes we are, if you will, caught in the middle of that. How do we battle against that? Well, with the authority of Jesus Christ, not in our own strength. And we recognize that Satan exists and the demons exist, but we don't run around being intimidated by that fact or seeing a demon under every bush. And there are certain people in Christianity who do get involved in that. And they live their lives with a great deal of fear. Um, It'd be interesting to know, and I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever really, really sensed evil? Being in the presence of it. Uh, I have, on at least two occasions. Uh, when my first church in Othello, one night, one Saturday night, as I often did, I was walking between the church in the parsonage, which was across the parking lot. And I was preaching the next day on Satan. And as I walked across that parking lot, I just, all of a sudden, I just sensed this evil around me, and it just gave me goosebumps. And I just had to stop and pray, and uh, which I did. The second time, Ray Green was there with me in my office at Maple Valley. 
And we had a guy come into the church who was disrupting the church. And he was not a believer, as far as we know. He started attending, and he was causing problems in an adult Sunday school class, and he was challenging the teachers and everything else. And Ray and I had to sit him down after church one Sunday and just tell him, either you change or you go. And uh, I can remember being in that room with that guy and uh, just really sensing that I was in the presence of, of an evil power. I don't know whether Ray felt that or not, but I was certainly thankful that Ray was there with me. And uh, eventually the guy, we had a guy in the church who was a cop with the Renton Police Department. And uh, the guy didn't change after a few weeks and was continuing to sow discord in the church. And so we had, well, maybe Ray was with him, but this cop in particular met him at the door, showed him his badge and says, you go. You're not coming in here. That was a pretty extreme thing. But we felt that for the sake of the church, that's what had to happen. So I, I believe in the forces of darkness, and I believe that there are demons whom Satan has appointed over probably geographic locations. Uh, for instance, one reference in Daniel is the prince of Persia in reference to uh, some demonic power and authority. Scripture refers to them as powers and authorities. And he's not talking about human power and human authority. He's talking about the forces of, of darkness. The Bible says we have victory. We need to claim it. Not live our lives in fear, but to claim the victory that we have through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Because among other things, when Jesus died as a sacrifice on the cross, he defeated Satan. And we uh, have to believe what Paul, God said through the Apostle Paul, that he, he stripped him of his power. And then, as I have already transgressed and moved into complete liberty, we'll talk about it for just a moment again. Therefore, don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink. Religious festivals, Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. Again, these things pointed the Messiah who would come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He is the real thing. You kids get that all caught up on that and your, your blanks are filled in? Okay, that's important to me that you get it. So let's summarize some things today. I've been a pastor for a long time. One of the things I've become impressed with is this. Too many professing Christians live as though they are spiritually dead. You can't tell by looking at their lives whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian. The main reason is because they've never incorporated into their lives the fact that he's the vine, they're the branches. They've never developed a relationship with Christ. Therefore, they seem powerless to say no to that which is sin and yes to that which is pleasing to God. And again, there are just too many Christians 
professing Christians, and I emphasize the word professing. They may or may not be believers. Because I believe that when God saves somebody, he changes them. That's his desire. And people will change on the basis of their time spent with God in his word, in the application of truth to their lives. Second thing I've noticed is this. Too many Christians still carry the guilt of their past because they don't believe what God has said. It's important that we really believe that when Jesus died, God nailed our sin to the cross. We are declared righteous in God's sight the moment we believe. His righteousness is given to us as a gift. And it's important for us to understand that and to believe what God has said that he has removed our guilt. The book of Hebrews talks about a clear conscience before God. And we have that once we really put into place our faith, not only in what Christ has done for us when he died, but in what God has said about that and how it applies to our lives. Third thing, too many Christians let other religious people dictate how they live. So don't let somebody judge you based on man-made regulations. You will go to certain parts of the country and there will be one set of man-made rules and regulations. You'll go to another part of the country and there will be a different set. And so we need to understand that what God has said, God has said, and what he has called sin is sin, and we need to put our lives in order under his authority but to not let other people judge us or dictate to us how we live in terms of man-made rules and regulations. For instance, chocolate chip cookies. You have my blessing. Go for it, ladies. Go for it. My wife sees chocolate chips as medicinal. Another thing I've noticed is this. Too many Christians would rather live under the written code rather than under the Spirit's power. It's almost like some people need a list. Whether it's man-made or God-given, they've got to have a list. In my life in ministry, I've tried to emphasize to people, listen, you need a personal relationship with God, and you need to consult the Lord about things, and not to determine on, be based on what I tell you is right or wrong. God has said what is right and wrong in his word. But if there's a question about something, go to the Lord for the answer. And I had a Christian tell me once, I just can't live that way. I've got to have somebody tell me what's right or wrong. And they were more comfortable living under a written code rather than under the Holy Spirit's leading and power. They would rather focus on the shadow than the reality. So if we uh, look at Galatians 5.1, we see this word in summary. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
My question is this. If we are free, does it mean that it doesn't matter how we live? Does it mean that we can just go out there and sin with impunity because Christ died and paid the price for our sins? And the answer to you is no. Because the Bible tells us that when we put our trust in Christ, he gives us a new nature. He gives us a new motivation. And that motivation is not to sin with impunity. It is to please God. And if that is not there, then there's no new birth that has taken place. There's no spiritual life. What are the guiding principles for living free in Christ? And I'm going to give you three today. Okay? These are the qualifiers. Number one, does it agree with Scripture? What does the Bible say about it? Listen, God's moral standards have never changed. Sin is still sin. You can take each one of the Ten Commandments and hold it up against the New Testament, and you will find perfect agreement between what Jesus said and what God said when he gave the Ten Commandments regarding idolatry, adultery, stealing, murder, all of these things. In fact, Jesus raised the bar. For instance, in the area of adultery, he said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery already in his heart. One commandment that Jesus did not repeat, and that is regarding the Sabbath. All of the others he repeated. We have the law of Christ, which is in perfect agreement with the Ten Commandments. And what God said is sin in the Old Testament is still sin. God has not changed his moral standards. He may have restated them in some way. What we have in the New Testament is the law of Christ and the law of love that govern our behavior. Does it agree with Scripture? I've heard too many Christians say, well, I know what the Bible says, but. As soon as they get to the word but, that's where I want to kick them. Because what they're doing is they're, they're compromising what God has said. Does it agree with Scripture? Two, will it cause a, quote, weaker believer to stumble? Let me give you an illustration. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was dealing sometimes with churches who were a blend and a mix between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And these Jewish believers were people who had been involved in, in Judaism and uh, living under the law that God had given through Moses. And part of what God had said through Moses had to do with meat that was clean or unclean. And as Paul went from place to place, he would find that if he went down to the meat market to get a T-bone for dinner, there might be a problem because that might be from an animal that was offered as a sacrifice to an idol. 
And Paul refers to that, and he says, look, you know, meat is meat. A T-bone's a T-bone. He says, I am free to eat that. But if it's going to cause a, quote, weaker brother to stumble in their walk with God, then I will limit my liberty, and I won't eat T-bone. I'll eat vegetables instead. You understand what I'm saying? He did not want to affect the faith of these Jewish believers. They were considered to be a, quote, weaker brother because of their, their conscience and where it was at the time. And so he says, no, I'm going to limit my liberty. I'm not going to eat something that's been offered to idol if it's going to be an issue. It's going to be a problem. And I think that's a principle that you and I need to understand. There are things that you and I may be free to do in Christ. You may have Jewish friends that wouldn't do those things, and they're not believers. And so you want to be careful about how you exercise your liberty in Christ. There may be somebody in in your life who may be a Christian. Maybe they're not even Jewish, but... um, I think that in terms of what we eat or drink, sometimes we can give somebody an, uh, the idea that, hey, it's okay for Brad, so it's okay for me, even if they have a Trump problem with it. And so we have to be we have to be careful. I think alcoholism is a real issue in our country. Uh, would I be free to drink a glass of wine with my dinner? I'm going to shock some of you and say, yeah, I have freedom in Christ to do that as long as I don't get drunk. Drunkenness is the issue. But how about if I've got somebody eating dinner with me where it is a problem for them? Maybe they have been saved out of alcoholism. That might cause them to stumble. And so we have to be really, really careful. I choose to limit my liberty. And uh, besides that, I think the stuff tastes terrible. I tried it once. (laughs) Will it cause a brother to stumble in their walk with God? And three, will it damage my testimony for Jesus? I might have freedom to do something as a believer, but how about an unsaved person? Are they going to look at my actions? And is it going to hinder my testimony for Jesus Christ? That is another principle that we have to apply to our lives in living free in Jesus Christ. Well, how is it with you? Shadow or reality? You're focusing on the shadow or upon Jesus? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the principles that you give us in your word that help us to understand not only that we are free in Jesus Christ, but that we have certain principles that would guide us and direct us and enable us to uh, exercise our liberty in a way that would not damage your testimony or the growth to maturity of another believer. So today, Lord, help us to take these principles Help us to live free in Jesus, realizing that we are free from sin and its shackles. 
We are free from the influence of Satan over us. And we are free, we have been set free to serve you in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Thank you, God, for working in us so that you might work through us. In Christ's name, amen.